1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Sumantra Bose about his new book, Secular States, Religious Politics India, Turkey, and the Future of Secularism. A fascinating comparison of the rise of religious parties in secular states and what that means for secularism. Sumantra Bose, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Sumanta, I wonder if you could start with a bit of an intellectual history of yourself and how you got to writing this book. Uh, well,
0: uh, although uh, this book has just come out in 2018, uh, globally from Cambridge University Press, uh, it's actually been on my mind for the past you know, 20 years, since the late 1990s um from the time when i was just about finishing up my phd at columbia university and beginning my uh career at the lsc um and there's a reason why this book has had such a long uh, gestation period um i happen to belong to uh the generation in india um that grew up in India in the 1980s um, and watched uh, at first hand uh, the gradual erosion and decline of uh, secularism uh, or neutrality in matters of religion on the part of the state uh, through that uh, decade. Um, one of the defining moments of that process of erosion and decline of the Indian secular state, uh, which uh, many of us had taken for granted until then, uh, was the raising, literally, the uh, the destruction of a 16th century mosque uh, in a small town, uh, a Hindu pilgrimage town, called Ayodhya in northern India. Um, on December 6th, 1992, after several years of agitation, Hindu nationalist militants um, literally tore down um, that uh, 16th century mosque uh, in a frenzied attack that lasted several hours. Their rationale was that the mosque had been built in the 16th century uh, on the orders of of, uh, Babur, or in honor of Babur, the founder of India's uh, Mughal monarchy, uh, on the exact spot where the ancient uh, Hindu deity Lord Ram had uh, been born. Uh, of course, there's no way of either verifying or falsifying this sort of uh, mythological claim. Um, I remember, you know, being in New York uh, in 1992 uh, when the mosque came down uh, in on December 6, 1992, and I realized that day. That um, the Indian secular state was under, you know, severe challenge, uh, and that the form of uh, quote unquote secular national identity, uh, which um, we had taken for granted in many cases, and which had been dominant in India uh, since the 1920s, since long before India's emergence as an independent country, could uh, no longer be taken for Granted, About uh, Turkey, uh, my uh, interest in Turkey and uh, its politics also uh, dates um, a long time uh, back to the first half of the 1990s. Uh, I happen to have worked a lot on uh, ethnic and ethno-national conflicts, and particularly conflicts between states and aggrieved ethnic or ethno-national groups within those states. And as many of uh, us might recall, uh, it was during the first half of the 1990s that uh, an armed conflict between the Turkish state and uh, Kurdish ethno-nationalist insurgents came to a climax and regularly made headlines. I was interested in that, but gradually realized as the 1990s progressed that it was not possible to make sense of that uh, conflict without first understanding the political history uh, and the circumstances of formation and development of the Turkish Republic established by Mustafa Kemal and his associates in the 1920s. Um, in that process, I came to the explicit realization of something I had known uh, somewhat more vaguely before, that Turkey was the other exemplar uh, of a non-Western secular state, other than my own, I'm from India uh, originally, um, that uh, had loudly proclaimed um, secularism, or in the Turkish case, strictly speaking, lacism, uh, to be a pillar of its identity since its formation. Um, So I thought that the erosion and decline of the secular state in India and Turkey, of course, the terminal phase of the decline of the Kemalist secular state hadn't yet begun in Turkey. It began in the early 2000s. I thought that this would be an excellent topic for a comparative study of uh, the secular state and its decline in the non-Western world, with India and Turkey as the examples. So I wrote up a book proposal to that effect uh, in the year 2000. But then, as things turned out, I never got around to it because many other academic and non-academic preoccupations intervened. And it was only three years ago in 2015 that uh, it suddenly uh, occurred to me, uh, literally one fine morning, that the original project, uh, which I had neglected to pursue in the early 2000s, uh, was even more relevant, uh, more topical to the times than uh, it had been back then, um, especially with the second coming of uh, the Hindu nationalist movement in India uh, with the Hindu nationalist movement's political party, the Bharatiya Janata Party or the BJP um, literally means Indian People's Party uh, winning an unprecedented single party majority in India's parliamentary election uh, in 2014 and of course in Turkey since the early uh, 2000s Uh, The gradual but um, uh, in the end decisive takeover of uh, state power in Turkey by uh, Hanafi uh, Sunni uh, Islamists uh, professing a very different you know, Turkish Islamic conception of national identity to the original Kemalist conception, uh, with its politics uh, embodied in the AK Party, the Justice and Development Party, and personified by the rather towering figure of uh, first Prime Minister and then since 2014 President uh, Tayyip uh, Erdogan. So I dusted off the original proposal from 2000, Um, you know, made some uh, revisions and updates and began afresh. And uh, that uh, resulted in uh, my writing up the book in 2017 and its publication
1: earlier this year.
0: So that's the intellectual history of uh, this book.
1: Before we delve into what I think is a fascinating comparison between Turkey and India, perhaps you want to go into... uh why you were distinguishing between Western and non-Western states in terms of a secular development. Uh,
0: yes. Um, that's a key starting point. Um, the Western secular state uh comes in a number of variants, as uh uh you would know. Um the uh the American you know version of the secular state uh, is not uh, uh quite the same as uh, the French uh, version of the secular state, for example. Um, however, uh, what Western secular states do have as a common denominator uh, is um, the principle, whether explicitly or uh, implicitly, uh, of uh, separation of uh, church and state, um, the famous wall of separation doctrine of distancing the modern states from the realm, the domain of religion uh, matters, you know, religious, um, from religious personnel and uh, institutions. Uh, This of course is uh, explicit uh, in the historical uh, American conception of the secular state. The first amendment to the constitution of the United States Uh, which was um, advanced by James Madison of the Federalist Papers fame in 1791, um, explicitly said that uh, Congress, meaning uh, the US, you know, the bicameral US federal legislature, um, would uh, permit, you know, freedom of religion, but would make no laws uh, establishing a religion, i.e., there would never be any official religion and no religious test would ever be required for any public office or position of trust in the United States. And about a decade later in 1802, um, in a letter, um, Thomas Jefferson um, reiterated this and used that uh, famous phrase, you know, wall of separation between religion and the state. Uh, of course, the French secular state, perhaps the other, you know, major Western secular state that uh, fully came into being by the early twentieth century, uh, was different from the American conception in that uh, it professed to avoid um, intervention, state intervention in the religious sphere, but uh, at the same time, you know, practiced it, you know, quite systematically. Um, the, uh, on the other hand, the American you know, conception, um, uh, uh, there was an attempt to at least you know, live up to the doctrine of uh, the wall of separation. So, for example, in 1948, the United States Supreme Court ruled that uh, uh, religious instruction of any type in the public school system of the state of Illinois was illegal and uh, the ruling said uh, separation means separation, um, uh, nothing uh, less. But at the same time, even in the French model of the secular state that came into being by the first half of the uh, 20th century, there is this uh, nominal conception, though not really practiced, of distancing the state from the religious sphere. The principal way in which the Indian and Turkish secular states of the 20th century differ from this broad Western prototype and the most salient common feature of the Indian and Turkish secular states is that neither state uh, either professes or practices any version of this wall of separation doctrine. Um, quite the contrary. Um, In fact, the Turkish secular state, uh, which was established in the 1920s and 1930s, um, was set up um, as an interventionist state, um, a state uh, self-endowed with vast powers of regulation, supervision, control, and even, you know, outright intervention in the religious sphere. Um, Of course, the proper establishment of the Turkish secular state began in 1924 with the more or less summary abolition of the caliphate after hundreds of years. And on the same date that the caliphate was abolished by the Turkish Grand National Assembly, uh, a new institution essentially replacing um, the abolished caliphate was set up um, this was an institution which is known in Turkey even today, uh, nearly a century later, as the Diyanet. Um, the Diyanet is the Directorate General of Religious Affairs, um, a new you know, office uh, which was attached uh, to the Turkish uh, Prime Ministry and whose head, the Diyanet's head, would be appointed by the Prime Minister of the Turkish Republic on the recommendation or with the approval of the President of the Republic of uh, Turkey. And this new institution, the Diyanet or the Director General of Religious Affairs was endowed with vast powers of supervision, regulation, control, and intervention over the religious domain. Um, in India, um, of course, uh, there has never been a Ministry of Religious Affairs in the same sense but if you look at the Indian Constitution of 1950, and particularly its Articles 25 and 26, um, in much the same way, the Indian Constitution gives um, the Indian Republic and its authorities, its its leaders, its elite, um, vast powers of regulation, supervision, control uh, of the religious sphere, you know powers of uh, intervention. And I think the common theme to this interventionist type, this regulatory type, supervisory type, controlling type of the non-Western secular state, uh, which was set up in both India and Turkey, was the common belief of the founding elites of the two secular states that the state was the essential agent of modernization and that if the respective societies were to make the transition from medievalism to modernity, from obscurantism to progress, from ignorance to enlightenment um, and all of that, then the state needed to have these powers of control over the religious sphere, which was viewed, uh, perhaps to varying degrees, by the founding elites of both states as a realm of backwardness, superstition, and
1: reaction. It strikes me that there is also one other, one fundamental difference between the Turkish approach and the Indian approach, and you sort of referred to that when you referred to the rise of the uh, Kurdish People's uh, Workers' Party in the 1980s and the ensuing uh, uh, insurgency. Uh, and that was that what Turkey was trying to do, or, or turn it around, India remained and developed as, uh, as a multicultural society. Whereas in many ways, Turkey was trying to mold uh, a, uh, the New Turk uh, uh, basically a new national identity that transcended both religious and national uh identities and and in fact suppressed both of those in, in the effort to create this new uh, this new people if you wish uh, indeed um
0: the differences between the Indian and Turkish cases are as uh, significant um as uh, the similarities um the Germanist vanguard that uh, set up the turkish secular state uh, in the 1920s and 1930s um had a revolutionary agenda um so for example uh in uh, 1926 um there was a new civil code enacted uh, in a one party uh, National Assembly or Parliament, completely controlled by uh, Kemal and his supporters, uh, which was borrowed from um, Switzerland's civil Code of uh, 1912. Um, and in 1928, um, the original Article 2 of the 1924 Turkish Constitution, which had stated that uh, the religion of the Turkish status Islam was summarily deleted. And then, you know, after a slew of other kind of reforming measures, um, in 1937, still in uh, Kemal's own lifetime, um, the Republic of Turkey was formally declared a laicist state. Um, This was a breathtaking, you know, transformation. And you're absolutely right. Um, It was um, an attempt, um, quite revolutionary in its uh, ambition. Uh, to create uh, an entirely new conception of Turkish national identity. Um, And in the process, um, the Ottoman Islamic centuries were consigned to the dustbin of the Republic of Turkey's history, where... um, they more or less stayed uh, until the end of the 20th century, i.e. for the next 70 or 80 years until the table turned, uh, the tables turned in the early 21st century. Um, one might wonder uh, what the motives of the Kemalist vanguard were uh, in pursuing this uh, you know, revolution from above or uh a cultural revolution of sorts, as some authors have called it. And here, I think, um, it's very important to realize that um, the Turkish republics, and specifically the Kemalists' embrace of secularism, um, was part of their agenda of making uh, the Republic of Turkey, uh, established in what was once the core, or the heartland, or the epicenter of the unraveled, uh, vast, sprawling, you know, Ottoman uh, Empire post uh, nineteen eighteen, that the agenda was to not simply make the Republic of Turkey this new nation state established after World War One uh, like Europe or like a European country, but to make it. Uh, a member of the community of European nation states. Um, This in turn stemmed from a very simplistic um, notion that Europe or the West represented the only form of contemporary civilization and the only path to modernity. And it had to be embraced uh, in toto. Now, um, this, to me, you know, represents, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And in any case, the history of uh, a thousand years, a millennium uh, of Islam in Anatolia, which actually precedes the rise of the Ottomans as uh, uh, an imperial power, um, could not, uh, you know, simply be abandoned or forgotten in in that way. It's also important to realize that uh, this particular Kemalist conception of modernity and the idea of secularism, because it was seen as an intrinsic part of Western modernity that uh, came um, uh, with it, um, that this conception was not shared by the people of Turkey at large. Um, it was very much the notion of a self-appointed elite vanguard seeking to build a state and to reshape society in the image of that state. So essentially, the top-down secularization of the Turkish Republic had to be imposed. And it was imposed on the population at large Um, often using very harsh, you know, very repressive and indeed uh, draconian methods. For example, as early as the mid 1920s, um, the fez, um, the the headgear of uh, most Turkish men since the early 19th century was um, outlawed and it was made mandatory for Turkish men to wear the Western-style top hat in public. And there were protests, you know, throughout uh, the New Turkish Republic against uh, this uh, new law, and uh, this was suppressed. Um, There were agitators that who were brought to trial and even hanged and so on. And that's just only one uh, example. So you're right, that because of the West inspired nature of the Kemalist, you know, secular state, um, which lacked uh, an indigenous argument, and cultural authenticity, Um, it was necessary to impose, you know, that conception on the population at large. And so from the very beginning, um, the Turkish Republic, including its conception of secularism, which was one of its pillars, um, became embedded with a deeply authoritarian gene. Now, India was um, very different. Um, in India, um, there was a twofold justification, which was cited by the founding elite of the Republic of India, which came into being in 1950 for the adoption of uh, secularism uh, as a key principle of the state. Although the term secular was not, uh, not explicitly used in the Indian constitution of 1950. It was inserted much later uh, in 1976 via a constitutional uh, amendment. But from the 1950s onwards, it became a, a, a commonplace. It became a standard part of the official discourse that India was a secular state, uh, religiously impartial or neutral state. And there were two justifications you know cited for this. Uh, first of all, uh, the multi-religious you know character of India as a country, and this was the practical or pragmatic part of the argument for uh, a secular state, that uh, India simply could not function as a a country uh, unless the state was neutral or impartial uh, between the variety of religious faiths found uh, in India. Uh, The second justification cited for uh, the establishment of the Indian uh, secular state Um, was also perhaps um, in a way pragmatic, uh, but it harked back to and invoked uh, an important aspect of Indian tradition of India's historical inheritance, um, which was uh, the everyday tolerance, mutual tolerance, um, and coexistence of diverse religious faiths uh, in the Indian subcontinent down the centuries. And the founders of the Indian secular state um, essentially argued that the post independence Indian secular state uh, post 1947 or certainly post 1950 uh, was simply trying to continue that important, valuable and indeed um, indispensable in the practical sense aspect of India's historical inheritance and traditions the everyday tolerance and coexistence of different religious communities. So um, the Indian conception of uh, secularism had nothing to do with any inspiration um, from Western models and and certainly not uh, any desire to emulate Europe, uh, unlike the Kemalist uh, conception. Um, So the Indian conception of uh, secularism Um, had a culturally kind of authentic ring to it. And this was accepted by more or less the entire political spectrum in India um, back back then, nearly 70 years ago, barring the Hindu nationalists uh, who were a very marginal force in Indian politics at that time and continued to be marginal for the next four decades until the end of the 1980s. Um, by contrast, um, the Kemalist model of secularism was all about uh, authoritarian diktats and imposition. And at the end of the day, um, when the Kemalist you know period of the Turkish Republic came to an end in the early two thousands, after eighty years, we are now in a post-Kemalist you know anti-secular. Uh, uh, phase for the last 15 years, it turned out that the Germanist conception of secularism um, based on this desire to emulate the West, be part of Europe, had over seven or eight decades, which is a, quite a long time, you know, several generations, uh, not won over or been able to convert uh, more than uh, a um, substantial minority, perhaps a quarter or so of the population of Turkey, um, while the Indian secular state uh, did not have the same problem of uh, uh, of kind of, uh, of of foreign inspiration in a specifically Western um, uh, Western uh, inspiration. And um, the Indian, you know, experiment in being a secular state, a religiously impartial or neutral state with no official uh, religion, um, developed uh, as part and parcel of a flawed but functioning democracy, uh, which gave the Indian idea of the secular state uh, a certain kind of popular legitimacy and popular acceptance um, which the uh, which the Turkish uh, uh, counterpart did not have and failed to gain over the decades.
1: There are two other differences between India and Turkey that strike me. One is uh, not only the existence of the Diyanet, a director of religious affairs, but also the role of the uh, of the Diyanet. I mean, you mentioned it already in terms of control. But it was not only a t- something that was uh, a, an, a vehicle of control domestically, it was an element of foreign policy, and this predates the rise of the Islamists and of, the, uh, uh, of uh, President Re- Recep Tayyip Erdogan already before that, the role that it, was, that it played in terms of trying to control Turkish communities abroad and project some degree of Turkish soft power. The other, the other difference that I see is, it's always struck me that Turkey was, in one respect, unique, and that in many ways the failure of Kemalism or the, the post post Kemalism, as you expressed it, is a result of that, and that was that there was an anti religious uh, undertone to Kemalism, and almost an attempt, if if all states, virtually all states. Have a moral and an ethical yardstick that is rooted in religion, even if it's not dogmatically followed. Uh, Turkey was trying to replace that religious yardstick, a religious-inspired yardstick, with with Kemalism as the yardstick, and that worked only for a period of time.
0: Uh, yes, uh, and actually, those uh, two points are. Uh, um, are linked to each other. Um, I, I, I believe. Um, uh, certainly, um, the, the Kemalist you know, conception of Turkish national identity um, severely, you know, downplayed uh, Islam as a shared uh, bond uh, of uh, the people of Turkey. And certainly, you know, after the establishment of the republic. Um, Um, It's worth pointing out that during the Turkish War of Independence, 1919 to 1922, uh, Kemal himself uh, repeatedly used appeals to uh, religious solidarity um, to unite particularly uh, ethnic Turks and ethnic Kurds uh, behind the project of establishing uh, a nation-state in Anatolia. But all of that was rapidly abandoned. From the time the Republic came into existence. And um, you're quite right that uh, um, the Kemalist uh, conception of uh, modernity um, viewed um, Islam in particular um, with great um, skepticism as something synonymous with uh, backwardness and even uh, something uh, akin to barbarism. Uh, and this is <clears throat> very um, clear in you know Mustafa Kemal's you know own um, speeches and uh, and uh, writings in that uh, um, formative period um i think that the diyanet was set up uh, in order to uh, exercise control supervision as this regulatory authority uh, of the uh, seculars of the emerging secular state uh, because of the Kemalists' suspicion of religion and everything to do with it. Um, so it had to be carefully controlled a closely uh, supervised. Um, and this was referred to from at least the 1950s onwards by scholars of Turkey as the control model of the secular state. The problem with this strategy was, uh, as I said uh, a little while earlier, it was never going to be possible to simply, uh, throughout uh, a thousand or so years uh, of uh, Islam in uh, Anatolia, um, and uh, uh, therefore, um, even after several generations of uh, of brainwashing of imposition, uh, the cultural revolution that the Kemalists you know, sought to impose uh, on. On Turkey failed and uh, elicited, in fact, a a, a backlash in the early uh, 21st century uh, in terms of an anti secular political transformation. Now, what happened in the interim was that by about the 1970s and uh, certainly the 1980s, um, the original Kermanist conception of secularism had frayed. Um, You know, uh, it was uh, Uh, well past its prime. In fact, you know, uh, that process of decline of the pristine Kemalist conception of secularism, which I've tried to outline um, earlier, began in the 1950s. So it was a long retreat of the Kemalist uh, conception of the secular state, which climaxed in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, What happened, you know, during the six decades of that long retreat from Uh, the 1950s onwards uh, until the early 2000s, was that the the Diyanet, which was um, uh, set up initially to um, supervise and control the religious domain, became over time um, a de facto vehicle for the propagation of the majority or majoritarian conception of uh, Turkish religious identity. Uh, rooted in the Hanafi uh, Sunni um, form of belief and faith of the majority of the ethnic Turks. Um, something similar you know happened in India as well. Um, what happened in India was that uh, this was a very tall order that uh, the Indian secular state um, could uh, consistently practice uh, strict impartiality. In its treatment of all um, religions, uh, that no religion would ever be treated with either any preference or any discrimination, and it's clear to me, and I talk about it at some length in uh, in my book, that from the formative period, the 1950s onwards, the the Indian secular state um, harbored an Insidious, but deeply ingrained uh, majoritarian bias. And there was a pattern of the the elites, uh, including even Prime Minister Nehru, who was an avowed uh, secularist, um, to give in to various kinds of demands raised by... uh, Hindu uh, nationalist uh, groups. Uh, for example, on the issue of uh, a total nationwide ban on the slaughter of cows, which continues to be a political issue in India today, um, so many decades uh, later. Um, what's come to India and Turkey is that in the 1980s, this growing majoritarian bias of the secular state and the erosion of the principle of impartiality comes to a head. Um, during the 1980s, India was ruled by um, nominally secular, of course, Congress governments, um, headed from 1980 to 1984 by uh, Prime Minister Nehru's daughter and eventual political successor, uh, Indira Gandhi. Uh, and from 1985 to 89, so for the second half of the decade, by the assassinated Indira Gandhi's elder son and political heir, Rajiv Gandhi. And during that decade, first Indira Gandhi and then Rajiv Gandhi uh, resorted to uh, de facto Hindu majoritarianism as an electoral strategy and made significant compromises, Uh, with demands being raised by the Hindu nationalist movement, which was still, you know, very much a fringe movement. For example, on the issue of uh, uh, the Ayodhya controversy, uh, the Temple Mosque, you know, controversy that I alluded to at the beginning of this interview. At the same time, what we see in Turkey through the 1980s, after uh, the third and uh, to date most uh, repressive and violent, you know, Turkish military coup, of September 1980, is that the military guardians of the Turkish state while paying lip, lip service to Kemalist secularism and promising to uphold the secular state uh, at all costs, uh, in fact, sanctions an alternative ideology which uh, to be known as the Turkish Islamic um, synthesis um, as a, a better basis uh, for the frayed uh, than the frayed you know kemalist you know ideology of national identity which never you know succeeded anyway yeah, in the people of turkey because of the defects that i uh, alluded to earlier in the interview and 30 years later um, the the ideology of the hegemonic uh, ak party uh, of uh, president erdogan uh, is simply um, you know um, a kind of an updated version if you will of the Turkish Islamic synthesis that was promoted by the ostensibly secularist military guardians of the Turkish state in the 1980s and into the 1990s. So the point I'm trying to make is that uh, I guess uh, twofold. Um, First of all, um, this notion of impartiality was always more uh, a myth than a reality. Uh, an aspiration as opposed to uh, something that was really achieved. And down the decades, both the Indian and Turkish states um, gravitated more and more towards accommodating um, majoritarian religious nationalist conceptions uh, of uh, national identity and by implication um, statehood. And the compromises that were made by uh, avowedly secular politicians in India, and by uh, equally, um, you know, avowedly secularist uh, uh, military, um, uh, you know, hierarchies, the the brass of the Turkish armed forces in Turkey, uh, paved the way for the rise of the alternative religious nationalist concessions uh, from the political fringes, from the margins to the center stage from the 1990s onwards. Um, this book is basically about explaining as you know we started out discussing um, the erosion and decline of the secular state as a political concept uh, and uh, an institutional reality in both India and Turkey and the dramatic rise of the alternative, Religiously based conceptions, majoritarian religious conceptions of national identity from the margins to the center stage. Um, And that's what I've tried to unravel and explain uh, in this book.
1: Does all of this go to explain why the rise of religious parties, particularly the Justice and Development Party in uh, Turkey as well as the BJP in India, why? In many ways, the model of Christian democracy in in Europe won't work in non-Western societies like Turkey and India. Um, That's a very interesting question. Um,
0: India's first uh, Hindu nationalist prime minister uh, was uh, a man called Atal Bihari Vajpayee, um, who became uh, India's prime minister very briefly for two weeks in 1996, uh, but then served um, as prime minister for um, uh, over six years, uh, heading uh, coalition governments uh, dominated by the BJP from 1998 to 2004. And uh, Vajmi, uh, who died a few months ago in August of 2018, um he was uh uh uh, uh well into his uh, 90s uh in a way wanted um uh, the hindu nationalist um party the bjp um to shed its um um extremist you know tag and he wanted i think to reposition it um as an Indian equivalent of a moderate, you know, right-of-center uh, European, you know, Christian democratic uh, party, you know, something like uh, uh, an Indian, you know, version of the CDU in Germany, um, for example. Now that was never going to work um, because um, uh, the BJP is one wing and one element of a much bigger movement, which includes you know, dozens of uh, affiliated you know, organizations, uh, a student's wing, a labor wing, uh, a women's wing, a business wing, um, um, uh, and, and so on and so forth, um, centered around um, a core organization called the RSS, or the Rashtriya Swamsevak Sangh, whose uh, name literally translates as National Volunteer Organization. Um, The RSS was uh, set up in late colonial India in the mid-1920s, and um, in post-independence India from the 1950s onwards, uh, it became um, the organizational fount of the Hindu nationalist movement. Now, the RSS claims to be a cultural and not a political organization uh, but this is uh, not at all convincing because the rationale for the RSS's existence uh, as the core of uh, India's Hindu nationalist movement of which the political party um, is the transformation of the Indian you know, secular state uh, in what is known as, into what is known in uh, their ideology and their terminology as a Hindu Rashtra or a Hindu nation state based on the majoritarian conception of an organic Hindu uh, unity, which according to that conception is shared by about 80% of of, uh, India's um, people. So it's an agenda for a completely uh, different ideological basis for the Indian state. And that is what the RSS, its broader movement, and ultimately its affiliated political party, the BJP, Exists or backs uh, towards, um, so the kind of uh, you know middle of the road you know Christian you know democracy you know, alternating in in power usually with uh, left of centre social democratic uh, parties that we have seen in post World War Two uh, Europe um, is never going to really be applicable to India in the same way because this is a deep fault line. Um, should India be a state uh, which? Um, is based on a um, secular, that is, non-religious, you know, conception of national identity, um, which sees all faiths uh, as equal uh, in letter and spirit, or is it going to be a state uh, based on this majoritarian conception of organic uh, uh, Hindu uh, unity that, uh, according to that conception, is... Uh, shared by 80% of the population, uh, barring the non-Hindu religious minorities, of which Muslims are the single largest element. In Turkey, the problem is a, a little bit uh, different, and this uh, goes to the um, uh, back to the authoritarian nature of the, of the Turkish state. Um, India is, uh, of course, a complex but highly evolved uh, democracy, uh, with uh, many, you know, flaws and warts, but it's a functioning um, democracy. Uh, Turkey, um, despite its democratic trappings, uh, is deeply infused with uh, illiberal authoritarian attributes um, from the foundational, you know, Kemalist period. So, what's happened in Turkey in the last, you know, fifteen years? in the post Kamalist phase, and the consolidation of uh, AKP, and particularly uh, Erdogan's personal rule, um, is that that old ideology, as well as institutional apparatus, paraphernalia, if you will, the ideological and institutional paraphernalia of the secular, quote unquote, secular authoritarian state has been taken over by the Islamist counter-elite, who have successfully challenged, you know, that uh, and essentially overturned that secular model of the state established uh, by the um, and most, that Islamist counter-elite has molded um, that old, you know, authoritarian, you know, state uh, to its own preferences, and um, there is a, a lot of talk, of course, of the. Uh, The personal authoritarianism of of, uh, Erdogan's rule uh, of his party's uh, now you know hegemonic uh, uh, supremacy uh, in uh, Turkey's politics, and that is simply really a continuity, uh, a carryover from the Kemalist phase. Uh, It's just that the personality cult of Atatürk has been replaced by the personality cult of Erdogan. Um, uh, Secularism or laicism is of course no longer emphasized as a key attribute of the state. But otherwise, uh, it's the same uh, intolerance of dissent of opposition, of uh, pluralism and difference in all its uh, forms, and the zero-sum, winner-take-all approach to politics that is typical of uh, authoritarian or semi-authoritarian polities as opposed to uh, democracies, so uh, you know that's my answer to your question is that uh, um, you know we for different reasons in India and Turkey we cannot we really have a situation uh, where internationalism will become an Indian you know version of Christian democracy, which you know as we know in Western Europe was a bulwark. Uh, of uh, the reconstruction of democracy uh, post, you know, 1945 in uh, many uh, different countries. Uh, nor is it um, uh, going to work this, you know, this Christian you know, democratic ideal because Turkish political context, uh, political heritage and political culture is so fundamentally uh, different. And the Islamist alternative that has displaced, you know, Kemalism. As the ruling ideology and the ruling authority of the Turkish state is as illiberal and undemocratic as its uh, uh, Kemalist you know, predecessor. Uh, it's simple. It's simply that uh, you know the bottle is the same. Uh, the label has some modified, and the portion that's inside the bottle um, is uh, is it's a bit different as well. But it is as obnoxious in the sense of being intolerant of difference, dissent, and opposition as its Kemalist predecessor.
1: This may go beyond what you can address, but it's, uh, it seems to me that maybe the one exception to this rule is Ennahada in Tunisia, the Islamist party, that seems much more to be going down a Christian democratic road than, for example, either uh, the AKP or the BJP.
0: Uh, yes, I think uh, there is a need for uh, Tunisian you know, exceptionalism, uh, but... Uh, uh, exceptions, you know, don't uh, prove the rule. Uh, so I think that uh, Junisha and the case of another case, you know, very much an uh, case. Um, uh, you know, elsewhere in the Middle East, uh, the contest between, you know, nominal secularists and uh, uh, Islamists uh, is uh, uh, seen in, you know, zero-sum terms and even more zero-sum terms than in Turkey, which is uh, sort of a hybrid uh, regime, um, with uh, 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 with a kind of a democratic layer on top of a, an authoritarian um, foundation. The case that comes to mind uh, is uh, Egypt, where, of course, you know, President uh, has been pursued as a kind of a zero sum um, uh, competition uh, between the Muslim Brotherhood on the one hand and the Egyptian uh, military um, on the other. Uh, it's very interesting that. Uh, Um, uh, In India, of course, um, the Hindu nationalists have participated in electoral politics from the very beginning. Um, The BJP was launched on the eve of India's first general election uh, in 1951 uh, to compete in the Indian electoral arena and represent uh, the uh, Hindu nationalist viewpoint uh, in India's elected institutions, both at the national level and the level of the various states of the Indian Union. And so in that sense, Um, India's Hindu nationalists have always partaken of India's democracy, but the ultimate goal has been the transformation of uh, the Indian state uh, into something that is in accord with their ideological conception of Indian national identity, which is rooted in the political concept of Hinduism. Um, which was elaborated in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, first by uh, an ideologue, um, an activist called Vinayak Damodar Savarkar, and later, uh, a bit later in the late 1930s, uh, it was further elaborated by Mathav Sadashiv Kolwalkar, uh, who actually built the Hindu nationalist movement in India as the head of the RSS from 1940 until 1970 1973. So it's a peculiar um uh, um, positioning vis-a-vis the ideas, what is clear that a transformation um, of uh, the state and the conception of nationality in the way the nationalists want to see is to happen it has to happen through democratic means you know through the consent of the people you know it not happen as happened in egypt a uh, few years ago um you know with uh, uh, you know with a uh, kind of a counter revolution that uh, was about ascendancy a, a military coup a, a reassertion of the of the uh, Pre 2011, you know, status quo uh, in all things, perhaps, and in the name. Um, in Turkey, um, the, um, the relationship of uh, you know, Erdogan's politics uh, to democracy uh, is more tenuous. Uh, but because, you know, Turkey, you know, does have, you know, certain superficial, you know, democratic attributes, although its political system and political culture is, as I said, fundamentally infused with illiberal, uh, criterion attributes, um, I think that, um, uh, what uh, Erdogan has in fact practiced very, very successfully. Is what I would characterize as a plebiscitary model of uh, politics. Um, you will have noticed that, especially in this decade, the second decade of the 20th century, you know, all you know, Turkish elections, whether it's parliamentary elections or uh, the presidential elections that have been taking place since uh, 2014, you know, various you know, referenda, all have a plebiscitary character um, in which. Um, It's, um, you know, uh, Edwin's kind of uh, uh, personal authority that is, you know, put up for basically a yes or a no. And so far in all of these contexts, Erdogan has prevailed, you know, albeit uh, 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 narrowly. So, you know, what we have in India is an ascendant and uh, indeed politically dominant, you know, Hindu nationalist movement, um, which... uh, which today governs uh, two thirds of the twenty nine states of the Indian Union at the moment, at least. But which has to achieve its ideological goal, that grand agenda of transformation of the Indian state in accordance with the majoritarian conception of Hindutva or Hindu nationalism by democratic means um, through the electoral arena. And in Turkey, we also have the use of the electoral arena because Turkey is not a fully authoritarian um, uh, country, uh, but more of a hybrid uh, regime. But the use by Erdogan of this highly personalized and plebiscitary strategy in order to first advance and now preserve his personal power uh, and its underlying ideological anti-secular conception of Turkish national identity and the Turkish state.
1: Thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care and all the best.